Let me pose a question to you as we get started. Have you ever found yourself questioning if God really accepts you? I mean, you know what you're capable of thinking and saying and doing. I mean, that's pretty current news, isn't it? You know, all of us have those skeletons in our mental closet that we wish he didn't know about. Have you ever wondered if God has some regret that he adopted you into his family? Those are some of the things that I hope to deal with this morning. This summer in our summer study program in the Gospel of Luke, you're going to be reading this week about two significance of experiences of Jesus early in his life ministry that now demonstrate his preparation for his public ministry in the beginning of his public ministry. The first event is the baptism of Jesus. The second is the encounter that he has with the devil in the wilderness. So here's what we're going to do today. First, we're going to look at some observations about these two events. We're going to see them in the context in which they happened and, um, and draw out some things. And then we want to pivot and we want to relook at these two experiences and see what we can apply to our own lives in our day and time. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. If you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1092. Luke chapter 3. Luke has described the ministry of John along the Jordan River. And he's baptizing people in anticipation of the coming kingdom. And he's declaring to the people and those that are listening to him that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we pick up in chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus comes on the scene. Verse 23 tells us that he's 30 years of age. Now, there are a lot of suggestions as to why Jesus waited so long to start his public ministry. As this includes the fact that perhaps many scholars believe that Joseph passed away years before, and Jesus, as the oldest, has been caring for Mary, his mother, and brothers and sisters. Um, I think it's also significant to notice that the men of the tribe of Levi, who were set apart for temple service, they were the ones that were to care for the tent of meeting and the tabernacle, they began their priestly duties at the age of 30. And so there might be very significant symbolism that Luke is trying to draw in here about why Jesus waits until that age. In light of the teachings of the book of Hebrews, of Jesus being our high priest, it makes sense to connect this starting point of his ministry to that of the Levitical priests. Now Matthew's account tells us that when Jesus came to John, John didn't want to baptize him. It was sort of like, well, what, why am I to baptize you? But Jesus responded, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So the one born under the law to save those under the law now fulfills the requirements of the law. 
Again, all looking forward to the beginning of his ministry. But most significant to me in this experience is that this is the time where we see God publicly sending his spirit onto Jesus in preparation for his ministry. And as I think about it, there are really three primary reasons that I think of of what's going on. The first is that it's a statement of God's possession. Here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, God the Father pronounces his regard for his son. He says, he is my son. Three times in Jesus' lifetime, Each one of extraordinary significance, God speaks from heaven concerning his son at his baptism, at the transfiguration, and then lastly, shortly before his betrayal and death. So imagine John's thrill to hear this affirmation. He's been out there preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then all of a sudden, there it is. In the person of God the Son, Jesus. And God is declaring possession is to whom Jesus belongs. He is my son. The second thing is the sign of God's pleasure. God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God took pleasure in Jesus. Everything in his life to this point brought pleasure to his heavenly father. Even his identity of who he is. And there's a third thing. It's a supply of God's power. If you look ahead in the text, what comes at the beginning of chapter 4? The temptation. Immediately after his baptism, Jesus is led into the wilderness where he will face the, the tempter. And there he faces the devil face to face, and God supplies the power that Jesus relies upon to resist the temptation. Three great truths, all tied to the giving of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism. It's a statement of God's possession, it's a sign of God's pleasure, and it is a supply of God's power. Now, let's look at the event that follows then. Let's go on into chapter 4, and we really should not miss the significance of this connected to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. I'm going to start reading in chapter 4, verse 1, if you would just follow along. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, You are the Son of God. Command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, And said to him, To you I will give all the authority and all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. Now Mark in his gospel account of the temptation puts it this way. The spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. 
And Mark uses a different Greek word than what Luke and Matthew use in their gospel accounts. It means literally to thrust out, to throw out. It's a word that Luke will use at the end of chapter 4 to describe the action of the crowd in Nazareth when, when, G, when, when Jesus comes to them and teaches in the synagogue and they want to thrust him out of town. They want to throw him out. That's what's happening. The going into the wilderness is not optional for Jesus. It's required. It's essential that this happen. It's necessary. And there he goes, mano a mano, with the devil himself. And here's how the scene plays out. Jesus, with a firm understanding of who he was and what his mission was, does battle with the devil. He's being tempted in many ways over the whole course of those 40 days. Uh, probably many more than what are recorded by the gospel accounts, though these are significant. And they may have been spread out, not just these, but these are the ones that are focused in here. And I think for a very specific reason that I'll mention in a moment. But all three are intended for the same purpose, and that is this, to entice Jesus to operate independently from God. Daryl Bach notes that such independence from God is the essence of spiritual defection and desertion. And in each case, Jesus will refuse to give in, and he will quote from Scripture to deal with the temptation. Now, here's the first temptation. It was to act in independence from God to meet your physical needs. This temptation comes at the end of a very vulnerable time for Jesus. He's been fasting 40 days. I've never done that, have you? I can't hardly make it through one day. So here he is. He must have been famished. And Satan asks him to do something that was clearly within his power to do. Stones lay all about them. Jesus, just speak the word and turn them into bread. See, he's being tempted to take care of himself independently from God. The if conditional that's used there is of a fulfilled condition. What he's saying is, you are the son of God. You have a need. Jesus, don't wait for God to meet it. You take care of it. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in that passage, God is reminding Israel how he provided for their needs when they were in the wilderness. And so it reads, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Satan is rebuffed. And he takes another tack. And that's this, abandon your loyalty to God, have it all now. Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world here, they're mine, and I give them to you. All you have to do is worship me. In other words, change your allegiance. Here's a proposal for a new alliance. And what makes this, I guess, so enticing from a human perspective is this. It would allow Jesus to bypass the cross. It would allow him not to go through with the brutal death that waited him. Have it all now, Jesus. Why wait until some future time here after you go through an agonizing process? And Jesus responds by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 from a passage where Moses is warning the people about 
idolatry and worshiping other gods. Here's the third thing. Appropriate God's protection. Prove yourself. This is the ultimate challenge. Jesus, if you're the Son of God, prove it. God's already said that he's going to protect you. He's not going to allow your foot to strike a rock. So go ahead and demonstrate the truthfulness of God's word. That must have been a powerful temptation. You know, some of us know it from growing up. It's the old double dare you. And it's one thing if you don't have the ability to do something, but in this case, Jesus did have the ability to do it. And yet he prevailed through all of these temptations. How did he do that? What was the key to his success, the key to his, his, his power here? Well, two things. One is the Spirit of God. Jesus was totally dependent upon the Spirit. And he faced the tempter. Don't miss this. He faced the tempter in his humanity. And in his human nature, he encountered the devil and he resisted the temptation. He was divine, fully God. But in his humanity, he resisted in the power of the Spirit. And second, in response to each of the temptations, Jesus answered from God's word. In every case, here's what he said. It is written. Jesus didn't depend upon his divine nature to withstand temptation. It wasn't his trump card. It wasn't his get-out-of-jail-free card. But he stood up with the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and he resisted every temptation that came. Look at verse 13. This is the result. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Two momentous experiences that prepare Jesus for public ministry. Indeed, that bear witness to his unique personhood and to his unique ministry. His baptism, where the Spirit comes in bodily form and, and empowers him. And second is his temptation in the wilderness, where he goes toe-to-toe with the devil and succeeds in resisting temptation. And with that completed, those two experiences, now he's ready with his public ministry that culminates in the cross and the empty tomb. Now, let's talk about some applications from these truths that we see, and let's draw them out. First, the giving of the Spirit. When we believe the message of the gospel and place our trust in Jesus as our Savior, God saves us, and he gives us his Holy Spirit. That is just mind-blowing. God the Spirit invades our lives. He takes a permanent dwelling within us. And we can see in the giving of the Spirit these same three elements that we see in Jesus' baptism and the giving of the Spirit. First, there's a statement of God's possession. Look what Paul writes to the Romans chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You either belong to God or you don't. There's no partial possession here. There's no, there's no partway uh, possession when it comes to our standing before God. Uh, you either belong to him or not. Psalm 103, Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Listen, more important than who you are is whose you are. You belong to him. It's particularly crucial in a day of self-examination, self-evaluation, self-condemnation. 
If you've believed in Christ, you belong to God. And one of the purposes of God giving us his spirit is to show his guarantee that the work that he's begun, he will complete. It speaks of a permanence to the possession that's declared to those who believe in Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God seals us with his Spirit. He's committed to taking us to the end all the way through, and by showing his possession of us, he puts his spirit inside of us. Listen, if you doubt the ultimate outcome of your faith and have concerns about the future of your life, if you've trusted in Christ, you really need to think about what Paul is saying here. Uh, God has declared that you belong to him. Here's the second thing. It's a sign of God's pleasure. Now, this should knock your socks off, folks. John the Apostle writes this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Every one of us wants to know, am I acceptable? And God says, I accept you. I delight in you as my child. There's a bumper sticker that you'll often see on a used car. Maybe you've been shopping for used cars. It says, warranty as is. Every one of us comes to Christ with that sticker, as is. God knows all about you. He knows everything in your life, from your past to your present to your future. And God accepts us in Christ. Here's the amazing thing. He already knows every defect. There's no danger that down the road, a week, a month, a year from now, he's going to discover something about you and he's going to be embarrassed and he's going to reject you. Not going to happen. He already knows you completely. Now, I have a caution for you, though, and after, after these two things, possession and pleasure, and it's this, you be sure that you separate fact from feeling. Beware that feelings are a lousy barometer of biblical truth. Because don't, haven't you experienced this where you just blow it, something you think, you say, you do, and then you confess to God about your sin and that, but then there's that nagging feeling, is this enough that God's going to reject me? Okay, don't go, you've got to separate fact and feelings. Will your faith be in biblical truth or will it be in how you feel? Let your feelings catch up some other time. But this is where our trust comes into play with what we know to be true from his word. So what do we do? We put our trust in biblical truth. We let the feelings catch up. Here's the last thing. It's a supply of God's power. After the resurrection, before his ascension back to his Father in heaven, Jesus told the disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You should be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. You do not have to face the challenges of life, the pressures of life, the disappointments of life, temptations in life, alone. That's the reality. God, the Spirit, indwells you. God is with you. God is within you. 
And so think about this. Your greatest human needs are satisfied in Christ through the indwelling spirit. The need to belong, a sense of belonging. God says, you are my child. Then there's a, the need to be loved, to be affirmed. And God says, you are my beloved child. I am pleased with you in Christ. And then there's the need for a power source to live rightly. And God says, I've given you my spirit and he will empower you. And that leads us right into talking about something that all of us are probably quite familiar with, and that's temptation. Um, I want you to turn in your New Testament to the book of 1 John, page 1302 in the Seatback Bible, 1 John chapter 2. John is going to describe for us three general areas or arenas of temptation that we face. So let's look at that, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So let's take these three things that John mentions and let's put them through the grid of what Jesus faced. First is the desire or lust of the flesh. In other words, satisfy yourself. The lust of the flesh is simply the passionate desire or the craving that comes from our fallen nature. The New Testament scholar William Barclay notes, it is to live a life which is dominated by the senses. That's, we face it all around us, don't we? The second thing is the lust of the eyes. It's the desire to possess things. It's the desire and the craving for things and possessions. And so we look around and the temptation is that we want all that we see because we believe that it's going to give us security, it's going to give us fulfillment, it's going to give us satisfaction. The third one is in the pride of life. And maybe this is the temptation that lies at the root of most of our sins. It's doing things that promote us, that please us, that brings us glory, brings us honor. See, here's the reality. Satan wants you to live independently of God. He wants you to depend on your resources. He wants you to think and act as if he doesn't even exist. But Jesus shows us the way out here, that the key to resisting temptation is depending upon the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to control our thoughts and our actions, and it is to depend on God's Word, where it instructs us how we're to think and how we are to act. The question is, will we rely on God or will we rely on ourselves when we face these difficult things? The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews connects Jesus' temptation with ours. Look at this from Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, satisfaction, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When you're being assaulted with temptation, you might think, but God, you don't understand. Oh, yes, he does. Jesus' temptations were real. 
He faced in temptation, I think, far more than you and I will ever face. But depending on the Spirit of God and the Word of God, he faced the tempter, and he did not give in. He did not give up. He made the right choices. I want to just read something. Some of you are familiar with Oswald Chambers and his devotional classic, My Utmost for His Highest. And he writes about this whole arena that we struggle in. Um, Look at this. I have it up on the board so you can see it. There are things in human nature, such as prejudices, which the saint has to destroy by neglect, and other things which have to be destroyed with violence, that is, by the divine strength imparted by God's Spirit. It is only when God has altered our disposition and we've entered into the experience of sanctification that the fight begins. The warfare is not against sin. We can never fight against sin. Jesus Christ deals with sin in redemption. The conflict is along the line of turning our natural life into a spiritual life, and this is never done easily, nor does God intend it to be done easily. It is done only by a series of moral choices. God does not make us holy in the sense of character. He makes us holy in the sense of innocence, and we have to turn that innocence into holy character by a series of moral choices. These two experiences of Jesus, his baptism and his temptation, lay the groundwork, the foundation for his public ministry. And the principles then that we draw out of them are at the heart of living out the spiritual life that we have in Christ. God has given us his spirit, uh, guaranteeing his possession of us, signaling his pleasure with us, and giving us the power that we need to make the right choices in life. But first of all, we need to know these truths. Maybe this stuff is new to some of you, and we need to know these truths. The truth to what God teaches us in his word, we really need to know. And then once we know them, we need to believe them. You can know them and not believe them. So we know them, we believe them, and then here's the third, and this is the critical one, we need to act upon them. We need to live because they are true. It needs to shape the way we think and the way we feel, the way that we act. And it has to do with the choices. Will I live in dependence upon God or will I live independently from God? It means to choose rightly when we're tempted, whether it's in the arena of desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. But that's the choice we have. And we will make that choice all throughout this week. Every day you'll have a choice that you will make. Will I walk in dependence upon God, trusting in Him and the indwelling Spirit, or will I walk separately because I figure I can do it better? Or I figure I can do it on my own. That's the challenge that we all face every day. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much that you have given us your word and that you've put these, these information in there that we might know it. Would you give us the willingness and the ability to believe it? and then supply the power for us to live it. And Lord, as we think through this coming week and the things that we'll face, would you give us the courage to choose to live in dependence upon you, trusting in your Holy Spirit to enable us to make right choices and to live rightly, that it would reflect accurately on who you are, this God who indwells us. 
And so we praise you and thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.